Hello, welcome. My name is Neha Vasakha and I'm the host of the podcast series The Feminist City. This is offered by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy and in the series we think about cities, our relationships with the city and exclusions in the city. In this episode, I continue my conversation with Dr. Sarayu Natarajan, founder of Apti Institute, picking up from last week where we had discussed the challenges faced by migrant women in Bangalore and continue to talk about women in the platform economy and more broadly political participation of women in the city i think uh, now the platform economy has become some kind of a oh this is going to lift people out of poverty right like i want i'm very interested in that conversation thing around the platform economy is that very much the you know platform work on platforms even gig work is mediated by technology and how do these sort of barriers around technology you know cut across or you know intersect with pre-existing social structures whether it's caste class gender etc right and i yeah. think that the answer around this is fairly complicated because while technology when there is sort of atomized individual access does have the ability to provide a range of opportunities both economic and other sometimes in the realm of civic participation there's also the challenge that very many of these barriers entrench the structures that already exist so women there's you know a whole lot of evidence that women do not have access to as many devices and the internet as men do you know and this very much follows the part patterns of marginalization that you see in society in general so i think that thinking about platform work and the opportunities slash limitations of it and the way it intersects with existing social structures cannot be without also considering who has access to technology and who does not um, so that's where i would sort of that's how i would sort of respond to your question no thank you that that no that makes a lot of sense i mean uh, i actually wanted you to talk to, talk to me a little bit about the report that apti had come out with on the future of work i mean i was just going through it yesterday and i was fascinated primarily because i think you had done a comparison between say platform uh, and ride sharing apps and on demand services could you tell us a little bit about it because i have so many questions on this report in particular <laughs> Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, all credit to the researcher Shruti Gupta. Um, she's at the National University of Singapore and she's done a bulk of the empirical work um, as well as the writing and thinking about this. Um, this research was primarily to understand the experiences of women on uh, platforms uh, vis-a-vis men. So if you think about sort of ride-hailing work, it's primarily performed in public and predominantly by men. whereas uh, personal services like massage beauty therapies and you know those kinds of things are done by women at home we try to look at it look at this gendered experience along a few dimensions we wanted to look at the rating system and we wanted to look at this question broader question of uh, questions of health and safety in the context of work um, as well and the sort of gendered experience around it we wanted to look at these experiences along a few parameters so there was a range of interesting findings but what became apparent uh, is the level or the expectation around emotional labor that women have to do as well as concerns around safety and security so i think we talked a little bit earlier about what does it mean for women to access you know basic levels of safety security uh, and the and this question of invisibility so if you're thinking about you know work that's on a platform 
that is performed in people's homes, there's a huge amount of invisibility and a you know, greater sort of fear or a sense of uh, security. Now, having said that, what we also found was interesting, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you encountered that in the report as well, uh, is this idea that it's not all negative, I guess, in the sense that there's a, a certain value that the flexibility of platform work offers, particularly for women who also need to navigate within a patriarchal system, their responsibilities of home and, you know, childcare, elder care, um, etc. So I think that uh, those were sort of the big things. There's also, of course, you know, the broader questions, which are much less gendered, which, which is a question of surveillance, which is a question of access to, you know, public services for safety and around safety. Uh, so women, for example, experience difficulty uh, complaining about instances of harassment at work, whereas it's much more difficult to threaten or there are, of course, a huge number of experiences in that context as well. And platforms have not taken the role of, uh, you know, being responsible for the safety of workers uh, in the context of, uh, of, you know, the performance of work itself. Uh, but, you know, there's a certain keep coming back to it, not to belabor the point, but to belabor it, uh, women's work is invisible. And I think that that is the big theme about female engagement on platform work. No, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the reasons I, I, mean, I really enjoy looking at the report, but I was also struck by something when I was going through it in terms of how it was presented. Because as you as you noted, while ride-hailing apps are usually dominated by men, on-demand services in terms of this kind of domestic, there seems to be, I mean, often the narrative around um, platform economy or gig economy is that this is about breaking barriers and allowing people and lowering the barriers of entry into certain fields, right? Except what seems to be happening is still the replication of gender roles in that previously where, in the sense that why do we not have any significant number of, I mean, any at all, um, women drivers in um, our ride healing apps, right? In the sense, what is it that prevents women from becoming drivers when in fact driving is something that anyone... So th there are questions that were coming up that was very interesting to me. And in terms of even the domestic economy, one of the uh, researchers that I was reading, Dolores Hayden, talks about uh, the non-sexist city. In that, she talks about how for a certain class of women, and this she's referring to in the context of America and uh, women sort of entering the workforce during the 60s and 70s and 80s. She says that upper class women were able to go out because lower class women and black women and women from marginalized communities had taken on the role of the domestic work at home. So the, the ability of certain women in the society to be able to go out and work eight hour work days was also hinged on sort of the outsourcing of domestic work to women of certain other communities. And so when I was reading the platform economy report, I was just noticing how these kinds of services, whether it's beauty or cleaning or uh, the, the, the invisible, the domestic economy that exists is also now becoming part of the formal economy, right? Like it's no longer something that is taken for granted. So I was just curious about what your thoughts are in terms of what are the factors that sort of retrench um, this kind of gender roles that are not being challenged even in the platform economy? And are platforms in any way even invested in changing that? In a sense, is there any thinking at all of disrupting this kind of binary? Right. As always, I'll answer the second question first. I think that platforms are invested in enhancing value for their shareholders. 
uh, as is any corporation, right? And to the extent that it helps to bust the binary, they will. And to the extent that it does not or does not necessarily add any visible value or the costs outweigh the benefits, uh, there is no real sort of uh, likelihood of any kind of investment in changing this binary. Like, why would you do it? Uh, would be sort of, you know, if you think about what corporations are meant to do, they're meant to enhance value for their shareholders and that's what they continue to do. So I think, I mean, it's it's a bit dry it's a bit hard i do think there are some platforms that contemplate the gender question more and i think the unfortunate aspect of that i guess is that it's very much in the realm of uh, corporate citizenship rather than necessarily anything that's either mandated by law or something that's uh, driven by the inherent need to do the right thing and i think that that you know there needs to be uh, a little bit more of a debate on how on a what and B, also how these might be more naturally incentivized. So I think there's something to think about there. I think on the roles of gender, I think this this also goes into some of the broader debates, literature, conversations around uh, why capitalism and patriarchy are very much tied together. It does benefit the corporations, the entities or the platforms that allow for this matching process to happen for women to do certain kinds of work, etc. So there's, you know, that dimension of it. And the second dimension that you alluded to is the ability of women to be able to, you know, go out built on the labor of the work of other women. And I think that the, the interesting thing for me though here is, uh, and I'm sorry if I'm slightly deviating from what you brought up. Uh, the interesting thing for me about this is that some of this, some of what the platform economy does, um, which is breaking down work formally invisible into bite-sized pieces is that it's starts to place a value on it in the sense that it is quantified, can be a part of the GDP calculation, you know, if you want to go down that path of thinking about this from a macroeconomic perspective. So I think there's there's something there about what it can do for gender and women in the economy. Uh, but I'm much more hesitant about its ability to empower women because a lot of you know what empowers women is not necessarily being a part of the platform economy, but sort of having access to safe workspaces, the ability to navigate it, and of course, all of the social issues that inhibit female participation in this workforce. So I think that it's more complicated than just the economic question yeah. around female participation. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, one of the things that was striking me even in this in this is in this question is that before i just move on to just the platform economy itself as you mentioned you know because often it's not just about the ability to work it's about whether that's actually empowering women in their homes and giving them the kind of economic independence to be able to you know live life on their terms and these kinds of questions what i'm curious about is one thing that we've not touched upon so far as say just the presence of gender minorities in the platform economy is there any presence of, say, tr- people from transgender communities or people who identify as non-binary, etc., who have any presence or participation? Have you, in your work, come across uh, this aspect? Because I haven't read about this so far, so I was I was just interested in what you might, yeah, be able to tell me about. Oh, this. sadly, that's that's my experience too, and to be, and this is probably my own failing. I have not encountered any literature on this as well. So I can only imagine and I can speculate, but I, do, I, I don't think there is, um, there is you know, participation from gender minorities in the platform economy. And I, 
yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's even evidence of how this experience might be or what the rates of participation are. And, you know, I think this goes to your previous point in a certain way that platform work deeply entrenches the gender binary rather than, you know, make, crashing it or breaking it down. Uh, yeah. Because in a certain way, it is uh, harder for gender minorities to navigate certain kinds of workspaces in the absence of, you know, fairly well thought out uh, policy protections. So I think, yeah. So last, I mean, the last thing that I wanted to discuss about the platform economy itself is a bit of the nature of the platform economy, because I think uh, multiple things have come up in COVID, right? Like, I think a lot of attention has been paid, I mean, not only to migrant workers, but also to the way gig workers have been functioning in the in this culture. One of the things that stood out for me when I was reading your report was a particular sense of this complete dependence on the algorithm and the app in order to access work so much so that even though there were women workers who were saying that the flexibility was really important and helpful they would also have to take certain work or not take leaves because you know if you do that your ability to get work through this app becomes reduced there, there seem to be multiple uh, factors i mean i would encourage everyone listening to go check out this report because it was really really interesting for me to read it but i was just curious about what what this is also doing for the nature of work itself in that things that i think previously somebody could have taken for granted that you know there would be this entire workforce that is working without basic labor protections so I was just curious about, yeah, what I, I would love to know your thoughts about that, because I think you, you've noted this in the report as well about incredible challenges that workers face in this economy. Absolutely. I mean, there are a couple of dimensions to it, right? There's the surveillance dimension, which is that every moment of your work day is surveilled uh, through the technology. So, um, so it's both the... Uh, you know, the physical act of doing the work as well as sort of people's responses. So uh, if, for example, you have a bad day at work or, you know, you have a negative experience, you can navigate an interpersonal relationship without being surveilled. But imagine now that that experience is reduced to a rating and you have to, you know, your entire emotive connection with the person that you work with uh, is reduced to some rating. And, you know, different people have different approaches. There's a huge amount of subjectivity to it. There's, so there's, you know, that aspect of having to navigate, of having to navigate work. And consequently, when you're reducing like emotional aspects of work to quantifiable things, there's also a huge amount of emotional labor that people have to do and particularly women have to do around this. So there's, you know, that, that thing to think about. I think there's another dimension of it is the sheer invisibility into the way the algorithm works right Um, there is no there's not enough information that is available as to why somebody is rejected for work you know why certain ratings are weighted a certain way and what that actually leads to uh, is a whole range of perceptions we did actually uh, around this report and you know thank you for encouraging people to read it you know I would also say the same we actually did a little activity when we brought people together to discuss this report where we were like please put down your uber ratings right and on a chart we had a range of people put down their uber ratings and you know people had a range of ratings from you know 4.8 4.9 to like 4 4.4 to 4.1 on five stars what we learned from drivers is that at 4.5 they typically get a warning and at 4.2 you're 
removed from the platform and you need to navigate a human process in order to get back on or you know to be re-enabled or re-enrolled uh, onto the system and you know in the conversation we were like if you're at 4.5 you're warned but there were a couple of people who had a 4.1 and we were like you know you should leave this room theoretically and so that was a difficult conversation to navigate but nobody really knows and this is something we gleaned from empirical conversations as in sort of interviews and conversations and we don't know for a fact that this is precisely implemented in all cases right uh, yeah. so we don't know that in all 4.5s that you receive a warning or you know, all 4.1s uh, or 4.2s um, you're asked to leave the platform so you know there's a there's, there's a lot of sort of fear and concern and imagine that mental like the experience of having to work in a in a in a system or a setting where you don't know how you're being evaluated right and yeah. as an organization at apti we have a lot of conversations about what, you know what it means for somebody to understand how they're doing at work right yeah. um, and a lot of this is it's dynamic it's navigated it's an interpersonal you know conversation whereas here you have no idea like you know you, you could get a two star rating it could actually be a finger mistake like in the sense that i could put two stars by mistake and you, you you could get offboarded and then you don't know and you have no ability to sort of navigate that situation you have no feedback like you you wouldn't get any feedback on how and why you do something um uh, and i think that that is a, a a hugely disempowering hugely terrifying process so i think um uh, thinking about what working conditions mean and of course and this this is true of both ride hailing as well as uh, other kinds of platform work right so i think there's um there's that yeah mm, absolutely i think um I mean, I was only thinking about earlier part of the conversation where you talked about what this uncertainty can do for the mental health of, say, the people involved. And we talked about it in the context of migrant workers. But it seems like even this kind of uncertainty and the lack of safety would be catastrophic even for the people who are engaged in the platform economy, right? I think uh, one of the, the other things that I was thinking about while you were speaking was precisely this. it's no longer a human interface it's the your boss is basically the app right like basically if you're locked out of the app you just have to find a way to get back in but there is no uh, transparency or accountability itself as to how do you you know ensure that you have access to your work and what that says for any kind of potential for workers organizing or uh, being able to you know actually work to improve their own conditions and the other thing that i was thinking about while you were speaking was also about who gets access into the platform itself because i think we've not uh, touched about how a lot of the times whether it's the cars that the drivers are using they have to procure them somehow or lease them or even the equipment that say uh, women who work in on demand apps are actually expected to spend it out of their own pocket and purchase them this was not something that i think i was thinking about and i've used these services before to think that these are people who who own their own means but they have to in order to be able to participate in this uh, platform they have to procure these at great cost and you noted in the report that uh, women have often had to rely on family savings or sort of go back to the family because ease ease of access to credit is not the same in terms of um, how say a man in a comparable position would be able to gain and yeah so i think uh, these are very these were very it was a very uh, disturbing read for me to be honest right uh, you know it, the, uh, this is 
it was a troubling experience during field work as well and this is very much reinforced by by sort of anecdotal experiences uh, and conversations with the range of platform you know the range of workers on platforms uh, i think having said that though i think to to think of it as universally bad or limiting or is i would say that's a bit of an arrow i think we need to sort of get into a little bit more of an understanding as to you know i keep saying we need more evidence we need more data we need more of an understanding of how these processes are navigated um but i think what is definitely true is that we need a more robust uh, a more thoughtful legal framework uh, that takes into account some of the specific experiences of platform work because unlike other categories of work in urban areas you know if you're using the contrast of migration the specificity or the specific nature of how platforms navigate or sort of oversee workers is something that must be unpacked and you know you need to have a legal framework there that operates that deals with this kind of concern um i think mm-hmm. it's problematic and you know my legal training tells me enough that creating more categories leads to sort of problems in the way regulations are enforced yeah. uh, and it often leaves discretion in the hands of uh, you know bureaucrats or officials or sort of Uh, you know range of functionaries uh, but having said that i think being thoughtful of some of these big categories before this this platform work is here to stay and it's also a very significant component of the way in which you know we need to imagine the future of work and i would argue the future of workers as well um and therefore being thoughtful about you know how do you like do the right kind of regulation is very important here no oh, absolutely i think it's also important like i, I think uh, i think now there are a few attempts right i think through the social security code and there are certain attempts to sort of offer or bring in or recognize the gig economy as a component and to regulate it or to provide certain forms of social protections but i was only yeah. thinking about in in in, in the, to me the while i think that's a really positive step uh, to me a limitation is also in the lack of a comprehensive policy is i was just uh, thinking back to something that you mentioned is about how these existing systems get entrenched in capitalism in that for instance when you don't have facility for crutches or maternity benefits or for women in particular who have domestic work child care and you know the care economy that is predominantly done by women it's almost as if in the absence of formal structures uh that say other um members of the organized economy that see somebody like us we can apply for maternity leave or we can demand that our offices you know provide some form of child care it doesn't exist and they have to rely on families and systems or traditional systems of fam- familial networks or community networks that often can be patriarchal and controlling in the first place so it's almost like you are able to access or participate in the economy but in order to be able to do that you have to rely on a you know a, 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 an existing uh, system so the basic relationships are not quite changing and i think it's something that we need to think about also when we talk about how do we regulate the platform economy right in the sense because it's not just about um it's not just about labor protections in this context but in the this larger implications for what is it doing to in the, the social and stuff. yeah yeah i mean i think yeah you know it, one must it, it, it's a little more complicated right because what i think regulation or must think about is allowing the choice 
or, or or of having the option to rely on whatever it is that whoever wants to participate in the economy wishes to have right so if i wish to have a crash or versus if i wish to rely on a family structure you know it should it's it's there should be the option of doing so uh, and i think that that is what regulation can ensure and I, I and i still think that it shouldn't be the situation that you only have to rely on a potentially problematic social setting um in order to be able to access the economy. So um, yeah. I, I, there's, there's a delicate balance there that uh, that must be navigated in the context of uh, thinking about regulation, particularly paying attention to uh, this question of gender. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we can, uh, this is a topic that I think has endless dimensions, but I think I'd like to sort of, of talk course. about uh, elections a little bit, you know, about political participation, because one of the things that I was looking in my research is that the way in which you can ensure that gender is thought about and included is one of the ways in which that is often advocated is participation of women themselves in the political processes, whether it's at the local levels or at the city and the state levels. So the idea that if there are more women who are taking part in decision making and leadership roles, there is more of an understanding that there are the needs of women who use the city are different for different categories of women and for gender minorities and that their political participation is the way to go. And in that process, it's also doing something to the uh, to the spaces where these women come from. So I was just curious about, yeah, I, I would love to know what your thoughts about this are and about your experiences and uh, what you've studied based on um, political participation of women in Bangalore and Karnataka. Right. Look, I can't disagree, right? More women, more gender minorities must like it, it and that should, in my view, be the end in itself. Uh, because here's my challenge with with this question of thinking or or rather it's not really a challenge i struggle with it right because you could there's always an insidious argument that why why is it that only women must represent women or why is it that you know minorities must represent minorities what can not a popularly elected leader express these things and that you know that is in a certain way difficult for me intellectually to combat and the second dimension of this is there's a certain danger of reductiveness with this argument which is that only women can you know women can only talk about women's issues uh, which is more harmful than the other right that you only need yeah. women to talk about so you know that is very dangerous it it there's a tendency of reductiveness there's a tendency to slot women into talking about you know you talk about the women's stuff now and let the men deal with i don't know like sanitation more broadly or something like that yeah. or, you know some yeah. of the seemingly non-gendered stuff right yeah. so uh, my like entry point on this question of governance uh, urban areas gender is to say that um, women must participate because women must participate and gender minorities must participate because gender minorities must participate. Like that's the end, right? The okay. other challenge with this argument, right, is that what if, what if you end up with a policy outcome that's negative, right? Mm-hmm. Are you going to stop female? Like, you know, is that the response? Like, you know, these kinds of equity based or like equity linked arguments trouble me a little bit. And I would say that, it's a bit idealistic, I would agree, but uh, it's important to say that women must participate because women must participate. And that's the end of it. Like that's really what it does. And I think also 
if you want to think about some of the functional benefits of female participation, there's a whole lot of evidence of what it does uh, at the community level for women's participation in a variety of institutions, including informal ones. So I think that uh, that that is a complete set of reasons for me. No, that makes a that makes a lot of sense. I think you've touched upon that debate between identity politics and about you know what is it what does it mean for. Uh, democratic representation that's also participatory. I think there are different aspects to it. And I, I think for me, the way that I think about it is that one of the questions I actually wanted to ask you was precisely that. In your experience, does, is there, a, I mean, while there is documented evidence that more women do tend to, I mean, there are a wide variety of benefits associated with this governance. I was actually, I often think about it in the context of, is it feminist representation? I mean, irrespective of whether it's a, a man, a woman, um, it is somebody who identifies as transgender or non-binary in, in, in the position of power, are they actually representing the aspirations of the people who've elected them? Do they keep in mind communities who have been traditionally sort of not, you know, invisibilized as we've discussed in numerous, uh, in, in numerous contexts? I think it, 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 it's something that when, when I ask this question, it's also the understanding that how does this, how is how is women's participation even thought about, say, in a city like Bangalore? In a sense, uh, do we have enough women at our local levels who are standing in elections? Do they get uh, elected? And once they get elected, are they able to sort of participate in these processes, you know, uh, and, and get re-elected each time? In a sense, I'm just trying to understand what is the status in 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 this in this city and in this context particularly for women's participation. Yeah. Yeah. See, as far as I know, there's reservation at the municipal BBMP level in Bangalore uh, and very many urban areas have reservation for women. And this is it, this is a feature of um, our, uh, you know, decentralized governance mechanisms where in, in a variety of sort of um, local elections, there's reservations for women candidates. Now, the story on what it does for women's participation is like everything else that we've talked about today complicated. Uh, there is sort of the argument that's often thrown that it's the man who's behind and puppeteering the woman. Yeah. Uh, but there's also more evidence that's emerging. Uh, and this is not just in the context of um, of uh, women, but also in the context of gender minorities, to the extent that it's analogous uh, on the benefits it has on participation in a range of institutions, like we talked about, like formal as well as informal, uh, particularly in uh, these decision-making co-creation processes that happen at the local level. So there is some evidence that, you know, it reduces the barriers to entry, it reduces the hesitation that uh, those who traditionally not got access to power experience, you know, seeing a female or seeing somebody who looks like you or is like you does. So I think that this is very much a question, like there's the normative aspect of it, but there's also the aspect of, you know, what is the empirical reality in a particular context? There are, there's a whole range of sort of, uh, bits of evidence that are talking about this question in you know different categories of uh, marginalization for sure that you know that you need to pay attention to in thinking about uh, female participation I, I hope that answered the question but you know just to sort of during my own field work right I can talk about this theoretically from the literature and what all of that says during my field work um, the neighboring ward uh, to where I did my field work was a, a female reserved ward so it was reserved for women uh, all the candidates were women uh, there are and 
we i heard on the ground right and this goes to the argument that we talked about just now uh, yeah. which is that you know she is controlled by her husband and um there's also of course you know the other thing to talk about in the context of political participation uh, by women uh, is the idea that it's almost a bad thing for a woman to contest on her own right so mm. she is controlled by her husband so you know wo theek hai she will be okay whereas you know a woman ah. who's uh, independent and fierce minded you know like a badass is a you know is a bad person therefore and cannot be controlled so it's uh, it goes both ways so i think that female participation in politics and there's a whole lot of literature about this like carol sparry has written about uh, women and their experiences in participating um there's you know quite a bit of literature about female experiences uh, in politics so i think uh, it's uh, while you know it's hard to disagree at the normative level of what female participation should look like i think what happens on the ground or sort of the experiences are very varied and are differentiated no that that absolutely makes the case um i think uh, this was a very uh, i think we've covered quite a few really really complex topics and as you said that these are i think uh, i don't think that we can fully unpack all of them even in one conversation given uh, of course not years there are to them yeah absolutely thank you so much saryu this was really really interesting and uh, also thank you for being so patient and uh, answering all of my questions i think this was a very interesting perspective to also think about uh, three very diverse and important facets i think about urban life and women in the city thank you very much this is a very enjoyable conversation i think i really enjoyed thinking about these things um and i i i really hope it also encourages uh, the listeners to go back and read and learn a lot more i think part of the problem and we alluded to it earlier in the conversation is the very invisibility of of these issues um and uh, if nothing else if uh, you know if this encourages more people to engage with the literature to engage with sort of a range of like evidence that's coming up um that will be a, a, a positive outcome in itself so i mean i think what i would like to leave our listeners also to uh, to I, i guess to take away as a thought exercise is that i think as we talked about this invisibilization invisibilization is also an, a, a problem of imagination i think every time we read about an issue about the city i think it might be important to just take a step back and think about uh whatever this problem is on its implications with respect to gender or with respect to caste or class and something that the problem itself is not explicitly stating i think that will actually tell us the different dimensions i think that we might miss out when we are sort of you know engaging with the city itself that concludes part 2 of my conversation with dr sanjeev natarajan next week i'll be speaking to dr navin bharati about his work on caste and religion based segregation and housing in bangalore if you're interested in the readings that we discussed over the course of the episode uh, you'll find them in links below do follow our channel in order to keep track of upcoming episodes and if you're listening to this for the first time do check out our previous episodes as well thank you